immune system. However, these systems can become overwhelmed if we are challenged by an ongoing threat or even the perception of threat. This accounts for the wide array of physical problems researchers have documented in traumatized people. Yet our conscious self also plays a vital role in maintaining our inner equilibrium. We need to register and act on our physical sensations to keep our bodies safe. Realizing we're cold compels us to put on a sweater. Feeling hungry or spacey tells us our blood sugar is low and spurs us to get a snack. The pressure of a full bladder sends us to the bathroom. Tomasio points out that all of the brain structures that register background feelings are located near areas that control basic housekeeping functions, such as breathing, appetite, elimination, and sleep-wake cycles. He writes, This is because the consequences of having emotion and attention are entirely related to the fundamental business of managing life within the organism. It is not possible to manage life and maintain homeostatic balance without data on the current state of the organism's body. Tomasio calls these housekeeping areas of the brain the proto-self because they create the wordless knowledge that underlies our conscious sense of self. The Self Under Threat In 2000, Tomasio and his colleagues published an article in the world's foremost scientific publication, Science, which reported that reliving a strong negative emotion causes significant changes in the brain areas that receive nerve signals from the muscles, gut, and skin, areas that are crucial for regulating basic bodily functions. The team's brain scans showed that recalling an emotional event from the past causes us to actually re-experience the visceral sensations felt during the original event. Each type of emotion produces a characteristic pattern, distinct from the others. For example, a particular part of the brainstem was active in sadness and anger, but not in happiness or fear. All of these brain regions are below the limbic system, to which emotions are traditionally assigned, yet we acknowledge their involvement every time we use one of the common expressions that link strong emotions with the body, such as, you make me sick. It made my skin crawl. I was all choked up. My heart sank. Or, he makes me bristle. The elementary self-system in the brainstem and limbic system is massively activated when people are faced with a threat of annihilation, which results in an overwhelming sense of fear and terror, accompanied by intense physiological arousal. To people who are reliving a trauma, nothing makes sense. They are trapped in a life-or-death situation, a state of paralyzing fear or blind rage. Mind and body are constantly aroused, as if they are in imminent danger. They startle in response to the slightest noises and are frustrated by small irritations. Their sleep is chronically disturbed, and food often loses its sensual pleasures. This, in turn, can trigger desperate attempts to shut those feelings down by freezing and dissociation. How do people regain control when their animal brains are stuck in a fight for survival? If what goes on deep inside our animal brains dictates how we feel, and if our body sensations are orchestrated by subcortical, meaning subconscious, brain structures, 
How much control over them can we actually have? Agency. Owning your life. Agency is a technical term for the feeling of being in charge of your life. Knowing where you stand. Knowing that you have a say in what happens to you. Knowing that you have some ability to shape your circumstances. The veterans who put their fists through drywall at the VA were trying to assert their agency to make something happen. But they ended up feeling even more out of control. And many of these once confident men were trapped in a cycle between frantic activity and immobility. Agency starts with what scientists call interoception, our awareness of our subtle sensory, body-based feelings. The greater that awareness, the greater our potential to control our lives. Knowing what we feel is the first step to knowing why we feel that way. If we are aware of the constant changes in our inner and outer environment, we can mobilize and manage them. But we can't do this unless our watchtower, the MPFC, learns to observe what is going on inside us. This is why mindfulness practice, which strengthens the MPFC, is a cornerstone of recovery from trauma. After I saw the wonderful movie March of the Penguins, I found myself thinking about some of my patients. The penguins are stoic and endearing, and it's tragic to learn how, from time immemorial, they have trudged seventy miles inland from the sea, enduring indescribable hardships to reach their breeding grounds, lost numerous viable eggs to exposure, and then, almost starving, dragged themselves back to the ocean. If penguins had our frontal lobes, they would have used their little flippers to build igloos, devised a better division of labor, and reorganized their food supplies. Many of my patients have survived trauma through tremendous courage and persistence, only to get into the same kinds of trouble over and over again. Trauma has shut down their inner compass and robbed them of the imagination they need to create something better. The neuroscience of selfhood and agency validates the kind of somatic therapies that my friends Peter Levine and Pat Ogden have developed. I'll discuss these and other sensory-motor approaches in more detail in Part 5, but in essence their aim is threefold. One, to draw out the sensory information that is blocked and frozen by trauma. Two, to help patients befriend, rather than suppress, the energies released by that inner experience. And three, to complete the self-preserving physical actions that were thwarted when they were trapped, restrained, or immobilized by terror. Our gut feelings signal what is safe, life-sustaining or threatening, even if we cannot explain why we feel a particular way. Our sensory interiority continuously sends us subtle messages about the needs of our organism. Gut feelings also help us to evaluate what is going on around us. They warn us that the guy who is approaching feels creepy, but they also convey that a room with a western exposure surrounded by daylilies makes us feel serene. If you have a comfortable connection with your inner sensations, if you can trust them to give you accurate information, you will feel in charge of your body, your feelings, and yourself. However, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort, 
Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from their selves. The more people try to push away and ignore internal warning signs, the more likely they are to take over and leave them bewildered, confused, and ashamed. People who cannot comfortably notice what is going on inside become vulnerable to respond to any sensory shift, either by shutting down or by going into a panic. They develop a fear of fear itself. We now know that panic symptoms are maintained largely because the individual develops a fear of the bodily sensations associated with panic attacks. The attack may be triggered by something he or she knows is irrational, but fear of the sensations keeps them escalating into a full-body emergency. Scared, stiff, and frozen in fear, either collapsing or going numb, describe precisely what terror and trauma feel like. They are its visceral foundation. The experience of fear derives from primitive responses to threat where escape is thwarted in some way. People's lives will be held hostage to fear until that visceral experience changes. The price for ignoring or distorting the body's messages is being unable to detect what is truly dangerous or harmful for you and, just as bad, what is safe or nourishing. Self-regulation depends on having a friendly relationship with your body. Without it, you have to rely on external regulation, from medication, drugs like alcohol, constant reassurance, or compulsive compliance with the wishes of others. Many of my patients respond to stress not by noticing and naming it, but by developing migraine headaches or asthma attacks. Sandy, a middle-aged visiting nurse, told me she'd felt terrified and lonely as a child, unseen by her alcoholic parents. She dealt with this by becoming deferential to everybody she depended on, including me, her therapist. Whenever her husband made an insensitive remark, she would come down with an asthma attack. By the time she noticed that she couldn't breathe, it was too late for an inhaler to be effective, and she had to be taken to the emergency room. Suppressing our inner cries for help does not stop our stress hormones from mobilizing the body. Even though Sandy had learned to ignore her relationship problems and block out her physical distress signals, they showed up in symptoms that demanded her attention. Her therapy focused on identifying the link between her physical sensations and her emotions, and I also encouraged her to enroll in a kickboxing program. She had no emergency room visits, during the three years she was my patient. Somatic symptoms for which no clear physical basis can be found are ubiquitous in traumatized children and adults. They can include chronic back and neck pain, fibromyalgia, migraines, digestive problems, spastic colon or irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, and some forms of asthma. Traumatized children have 50 times the rate of asthma as their non-traumatized peers. Studies have shown that many children and adults with fatal asthma attacks were not aware of having breathing problems before the attacks. Alexithymia 
no words for feelings. I had a widowed aunt with a painful trauma history who became an honorary grandmother to our children. She came on frequent visits that were marked by much doing, making curtains, rearranging kitchen shelves, sewing children's clothes, and very little talking. She was always eager to please, but it was difficult to figure out what she enjoyed. After several days of exchanging pleasantries, conversation would come to a halt, and I'd have to work hard to fill the long silences. On the last day of her visits, I'd drive her to the airport, where she'd give me a stiff goodbye hug with tears streaming down her face. Without a trace of irony, she then complained that the cold wind at Logan International Airport made her eyes water. Her body felt the sadness that her mind couldn't register. She was leaving our young family, her closest living relatives. Psychiatrists call this phenomenon alexithymia, which is a Greek word meaning not having words for feelings. Many traumatized children and adults simply cannot describe what they are feeling because they cannot identify what their physical sensations mean. They may look furious but deny that they are angry. They may appear terrified but say that they are fine. Not being able to discern what is going on inside their bodies causes them to be out of touch with their needs, and they have trouble taking care of themselves, whether it involves eating the right amount at the right time or getting the sleep they need. Like my aunt, alexithymics substitute the language of action for that of emotion. When asked, how would you feel if you saw a truck coming at you at 80 miles per hour, most people would say, I'd be terrified, or I'd be frozen with fear. And alexithymic might reply, how would I feel? I don't know. I'd get out of the way. They tend to register emotions as physical problems rather than as signals that something deserves their attention. Instead of feeling angry or sad, they experience muscle pain, bowel irregularities, or other symptoms for which no cause can be found. About three-quarters of patients with anorexia nervosa, and more than half of all patients with bulimia, are bewildered by their emotional feelings and have great difficulty describing them. When researchers showed pictures of angry or distressed faces to people with alexithymia, they could not figure out what these people were feeling. One of the first people who taught me about alexithymia was the psychiatrist Henry Crystal, who worked with more than a thousand Holocaust survivors in his effort to understand massive psychic trauma. Crystal, himself a concentration camp survivor, found that many of his patients were professionally successful but their intimate relationships were bleak and distant. Suppressing their feelings had made it possible to attend to the business of the world, but at a price. They learned to shut down their once overwhelming emotions, and as a result they no longer recognized what they were feeling. Few of them had any interest in therapy. Paul Fruin at the University of Western Ontario did a series of brain scans of people with PTSD who suffered from alexithymia. One of the participants told him, I don't know what I feel. It's like my head and body aren't connected. I'm living in a tunnel, a fog. No matter what happens, it's the same reaction. Numbness. Nothing. Having a bubble bath and being burned or raped is the same feeling. My brain 
doesn't feel. Fruin and his colleague Ruth Lanius found that the more people were out of touch with their feelings, the less activity they had in the self-sensing areas of the brain. Because traumatized people often have trouble sensing what is going on in their bodies, they like a nuanced response to frustration. They either react to stress by becoming spaced out or with excessive anger. Whatever their response, they often can't tell what is upsetting them. This failure to be in touch with their bodies contributes to their well-documented lack of self-protection and high rates of re-victimization, and also to their remarkable difficulties feeling pleasure, sensuality, and having a sense of meaning. People with alexithymia can get better only by learning to recognize the relationship between their physical sensations and their emotions. Much as colorblind people can only enter the world of color by learning to distinguish and appreciate shades of gray. Like my aunt and Henry Crystal's patients, they usually are reluctant to do that. Most seem to have made an unconscious decision that it is better to keep visiting doctors and treating ailments that don't heal than to do the painful work of facing the demons of the past. Depersonalization One step further down on the ladder of self-oblivion is depersonalization, losing your sense of yourself. Uta's brain scan in Chapter 4 is, in its very blankness, a vivid illustration of depersonalization. Depersonalization is common during traumatic experiences. I was once mugged late at night in a park close to my home and, floating above the scene, saw myself lying in the snow with a small head wound, surrounded by three knife-wielding teenagers. I dissociated the pain of their stab wounds on my hands and did not feel the slightest fear as I calmly negotiated for the return of my emptied wallet. I did not develop PTSD, partly, I think, because I was intensely curious about having an experience I had studied so closely in others, and partly because I had the delusion that I would be able to make a drawing of my muggers to show to the police. Of course, they were never caught, but my fantasy of revenge must have given me a satisfying sense of agency. Traumatized people are not so fortunate and feel separated from their bodies. One particularly good description of depersonalization comes from the German psychoanalyst Paul Schilder, writing in Berlin in 1928. To the depersonalized individual, the world appears strange, peculiar, foreign, dreamlike. Objects appear at times strangely diminished in size, at times flat. Sounds appear to come from a distance. The emotions, likewise, undergo marked alteration. Patients complain that they are capable of experiencing neither pain nor pleasure. They have become strangers to themselves. I was fascinated to learn that a group of neuroscientists at the University of Geneva had induced similar out-of-body experiences by delivering mild electric current to a specific spot in the brain, the temporal parietal junction. In one patient, this produced a sensation that she was hanging from the ceiling, looking down at her body. In another, it induced an eerie feeling that someone was standing behind her. This research confirms what our patients tell us, that the self can be detached from the body and live a phantom existence on its own. Similarly, Lanius and Fruin, as well as a group of researchers at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, 
did brain scans on people who dissociated their terror and found that the fear centers of the brain simply shut down as they recalled the event. Befriending the Body Trauma victims cannot recover until they become familiar with and befriend the sensations in their bodies. Being frightened means that you live in a body that is always on guard. Angry people live in angry bodies. The bodies of child abuse victims are tense and defensive until they find a way to relax and feel safe. In order to change, people need to become aware of their sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self-awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. How can people open up to and explore their internal world of sensations and emotions? In my practice, I begin the process by helping my patients to first notice and then describe the feelings in their bodies. Not emotions such as anger or anxiety or fear, but the physical sensations beneath the emotions. Pressure, heat, muscular tension, tingling, caving in, feeling hollow, and so on. I also work on identifying the sensations associated with relaxation or pleasure. I help them become aware of their breath, their gestures, and their movements. I ask them to pay close attention to subtle shifts in their bodies, such as tightness in their chests or gnawing in their bellies, when they talk about negative events that they claim did not bother them. Noticing sensations for the first time can be quite distressing, and it may precipitate flashbacks in which people curl up or assume defensive postures. These are somatic reenactments of the undigested trauma and most likely represent the postures they assumed when the trauma occurred. Images and physical sensations may deluge patients at this point, and the therapist must be familiar with ways to stem torrents of sensation and emotion to prevent them from becoming re-traumatized by accessing the past. School teachers, nurses, and police officers are often very skilled at soothing terror reactions because many of them are confronted almost daily with out-of-control or painfully disorganized people. All too often, however, drugs such as Abilify, Zeprexa, or Seroquel are prescribed instead of teaching people the skills to deal with such distressing physical reactions. Of course, medications only blunt sensations and do nothing to resolve them or transform them from toxic agents into allies. The most natural way for human beings to calm themselves when they are upset is by clinging to another person. This means that patients who have been physically or sexually violated face a dilemma. They desperately crave touch, while simultaneously being terrified of body contact. The mind needs to be re-educated to feel physical sensations, and the body needs to be helped to tolerate and enjoy the comforts of touch. Individuals who lack emotional awareness are able, with practice, to connect their physical sensations to psychological events. Then, they can slowly reconnect with themselves. Connecting with yourself, connecting with others. I'll end this chapter with one final study that demonstrates the cost of losing your body. After Ruth Lanius and her group scanned the idling brains, they focused on another question from everyday life. What happens in chronically traumatized people when they make face-to-face -face contact? Many people who come to my office are unable to make eye contact. 
I immediately know how distressed they are by their difficulty meeting my gaze. It always turns out that they feel disgusting and that they can't stand having me see how despicable they are. It never occurred to me that these intense feelings of shame would be reflected in abnormal brain activity. Ruthlanius, once again, show that mind and brain are indistinguishable. What happens in one is registered in the other. Ruth bought an expensive device that presents a video character to a person lying in a scanner. In this case, the cartoon resembled a kindly Richard Gere. The figure can approach either head-on, looking directly at the person, or at a 45-degree angle with an averted gaze. This made it possible to compare the effects of direct eye contact on brain activity with those of an averted gaze. The most striking difference between normal controls and survivors of chronic trauma was in activation of the prefrontal cortex in response to a direct eye gaze. The prefrontal cortex, or PFC, normally helps us to assess the person coming toward us, and our mirror neurons help to pick up his intentions. However, the subjects with PTSD did not activate any part of their frontal lobe, which means they could not muster any curiosity about the stranger. They just reacted with intense activation deep inside their emotional brains, in the primitive areas known as the periaqueductal gray, which generates startle, hypervigilance, cowering, and other self-protective behaviors. There was no activation of any part of the brain involved in social engagement. In response to being looked at, they simply went into survival mode. What does this mean for their ability to make friends and get along with others? What does it mean for their therapy? Can people with PTSD trust a therapist with their deepest fears? To have genuine relationships, you have to be able to experience others as separate individuals, each with his or her particular motivations and intentions. While you need to be able to stand up for yourself, you also need to recognize that other people have their own agendas. Trauma can make all that hazy and gray. Part 3. The Minds of Children Chapter 7. Getting on the Same Wavelength Attachment and Attunement The roots of resilience are to be found in the sense of being understood by and existing in the mind and heart of a loving, attuned, and self-possessed other. Diana Fosha the Children's Clinic at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center was filled with disturbed and disturbing kids. They were wild creatures who could not sit still and who hit and bit other children and sometimes even the staff. They would run up to you and cling to you one moment and run away, terrified the next. Some masturbated compulsively. Others lashed out at objects, pets, and themselves. They were at once starving for affection and angry and defiant. Girls in particular could be painfully compliant. Others oppositional or clingy. None of them seemed to be able to explore or play in ways typical for children their age. Some of them had hardly developed a sense of self. They couldn't even recognize themselves in a mirror. At the time... I knew very little about children, apart from what my two preschoolers were teaching me. But I was fortunate in my colleague Nina Fish-Murray, who had studied with Jean Piaget in Geneva, 
in addition to raising five children of her own. Piaget based his theories of child development on meticulous, direct observation of children themselves, starting with his own infants, and Nina brought this spirit to the incipient trauma center at MMHC. Nina was married to the former chairman of the Harvard Psychology Department, Henry Murray, one of the pioneers of personality theory, and she actively encouraged any junior faculty members who shared her interests. She was fascinated by my stories about combat veterans because they reminded her of the troubled kids she worked with in the Boston public schools. Nina's privileged position and personal charm gave us access to the children's clinic, which was run by child psychiatrists who had little interest in trauma. Henry Murray had, among other things, become famous for designing the widely used thematic apperception test. The TAT is a so-called projective test, which uses a set of cards to discover how people's inner reality shapes their view of the world. Unlike the Rorschach cards we used with the veterans, the TAT cards depict realistic but ambiguous and somewhat troubling scenes. A man and a woman gloomily staring away from each other. A boy looking at a broken violin. Subjects are asked to tell stories about what is going on in the photo, what has happened previously, and what happens next. In most cases, their interpretations quickly reveal the themes that preoccupy them. Nina and I decided to create a set of test cards specifically for children, based on pictures we cut out of magazines in the clinic waiting room. Our first study compared 12 6- to 11-year-olds at the children's clinic with a group of children from a nearby school who matched them as closely as possible in age, race, intelligence, and family constellation. What differentiated our patients was the abuse they had suffered within their families. They included a boy who was severely bruised from repeated beatings by his mother, a girl whose father had molested her at the age of four, two boys who had been repeatedly tied to a chair and whipped, and a girl who, at the age of five, had seen her mother, a prostitute, raped, dismembered, burned, and put into the trunk of a car. The mother's pimp was suspected of sexually abusing the girl. The children in our control group also lived in poverty in a depressed area of Boston where they regularly witnessed shocking violence. While the study was being conducted, one boy at their school threw gasoline at a classmate and set him on fire. Another boy was caught in crossfire while walking to school with his father and a friend. He was wounded in the groin, and his friend was killed. Given their exposure to such a high baseline level of violence, would their responses to the cards differ from those of the hospitalized children? One of our cards depicted a family scene. Two smiling kids watching Dad repair a car. Every child who looked at it commented on the danger to the man lying underneath the vehicle. While the control children told stories with benign endings, the car would get fixed and maybe Dad and the kids would drive to McDonald's. The traumatized kids came up with gruesome tales. One girl said that the little girl in the picture was about to smash in her father's skull with a hammer. A nine-year-old boy, who had been severely physically abused, told an elaborate story about how the boy in the picture kicked away the jack so that the car mangled his father's body and his blood spurted all over the garage. 
As they told us these stories, our patients got very excited and disorganized. We had to take considerable time out at the water cooler and going for walks before we could show them the next card. It was little wonder that almost all of them had been diagnosed with ADHD, and most were on Ritalin, though the drug certainly didn't seem to dampen their arousal in this situation. The abused kids gave similar responses to a seemingly innocuous picture of a pregnant woman silhouetted against a window. When we showed it to the seven-year-old girl, who'd been sexually abused at age four, she talked about penises and vaginas, and repeatedly asked Nina questions like, How many people have you humped? Like several of the other sexually abused girls in the study, she became so agitated that we had to stop. A seven-year-old girl from the control group picked up the wistful mood of the picture. Her story was about a widowed lady, sadly looking at the window, missing her husband. But in the end, the lady found a loving man to be a good father to her baby. In card after card, we saw that, despite their alertness to trouble, the children who had not been abused still trusted in an essentially benign universe. They could imagine ways out of bad situations. They seemed to feel protected and safe within their own families. They also felt loved by at least one of their parents, which seemed to make a substantial difference in their eagerness to engage in schoolwork and to learn. The responses of the clinic children were alarming. The most innocent images stirred up intense feelings of danger, aggression, sexual arousal, and terror. We had not selected these photos because they had some hidden meaning that sensitive people could uncover. They were ordinary images of everyday life. We could only conclude that for abused children, the whole world is filled with triggers. As long as they can imagine only disastrous outcomes to relatively benign situations, anybody walking into a room, any stranger, any image on a screen or on a billboard might be perceived as a harbinger of catastrophe. In this light, the bizarre behavior of the kids at the children's clinic made perfect sense. To my amazement, staff discussions on the unit rarely mentioned the horrific real-life experiences of the children and the impact of those traumas on their feelings, thinking, and self-regulation. Instead, their medical records were filled with diagnostic labels, conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder for the angry and rebellious kids, or bipolar disorder. ADHD was a co-morbid diagnosis for almost all. Was the underlying trauma being obscured by this blizzard of diagnoses? Now we faced two big challenges. One was to learn whether the different worldview of normal children could account for their resilience and, on a deeper level, how each child actually creates her map of the world. The other, equally crucial, question was, is it possible to help the minds and brains of brutalized children to withdraw their inner maps and incorporate a sense of trust and confidence in the future. Men Without Mothers The scientific study of the vital relationship between infants and their mothers was started by upper-class Englishmen who were torn from their families as young boys to be sent off to boarding schools where they were raised in regimented same-sex settings. The first time I visited the famed Tavistock Clinic in London, I noticed a collection of black-and-white photographs of these great 
twentieth-century psychiatrists hanging on the wall going up the main staircase. John Bowlby, Wilfred Byan, Harry Guntrip, Ronald Fairbairn, and Donald Winnicott. Each of them, in his own way, had explored how our early experiences become prototypes for all our later connections with others, and how our most intimate sense of self is created by our minute-to-minute exchanges with our caregivers. Scientists study what puzzles them most, so that they often become experts in subjects that others take for granted. Or, as the attachment researcher Beatrice Beebe once told me, most research is me-search. These men who studied the role of mothers in children's lives had themselves been sent off to school at a vulnerable age, sometime between six and ten, long before they should have faced the world alone. Bowlby himself told me that just such boarding school experiences probably inspired George Orwell's novel 1984, which brilliantly expresses how human beings may be induced to sacrifice everything they hold dear and true, including their sense of self, for the sake of being loved and approved of by someone in a position of authority. Since Bowlby was a close friend with the Murrays, I had a chance to talk with him about his work whenever he visited Harvard. He was born into an aristocratic family, his father was surgeon to the king's household, and he trained in psychology, medicine, and psychoanalysis at the temples of the British establishment. After attending Cambridge University, he worked with delinquent boys in London's East End, a notoriously rough and crime-ridden neighborhood that was largely destroyed during the Blitz. During and after his service in World War II, he observed the effects of wartime evacuations and group nurseries that separated young children from their families. He also studied the effect of hospitalization, showing that even brief separations—parents back then were not allowed to visit overnight— compounded the children's suffering. By the late 1940s, Bowlby had become persona non grata in the British psychoanalytic community as a result of his radical claim that children's disturbed behavior was a response to actual life experiences, to neglect, brutality, and separation, rather than the product of infantile sexual fantasies. Undaunted, he devoted the rest of his life to developing what came to be called attachment theory. A Secure Base As we enter this world, we scream to announce our presence. Someone immediately engages with us, bathes us, swaddles us, and fills our stomachs, and best of all, our mother may put us on her belly or breast for delicious skin-to-skin contact. We are profoundly social creatures, our lives consist of finding our place within the community of human beings. I love the expression of the great French psychiatrist Pierre Genet. He said, Every life is a piece of art, put together with all means available. As we grow, we gradually learn to take care of ourselves, both physically and emotionally. But we get our first lessons in self-care from the way that we are cared for. Mastering the skill of self-regulation depends, to a large degree, on how harmonious our early interactions with our caregivers are. Children whose parents are reliable sources of comfort and strength have a lifetime advantage, a kind of buffer against the worst that fate can hand them. 
John Bowlby realized that children are captivated by faces and voices and are exquisitely sensitive to facial expression, posture, tone of voice, physiological changes, tempo of movement, and incipient action. He saw this inborn capacity as a product of evolution, essential to the survival of these helpless creatures. Children are also programmed to choose one particular adult, or at least a few, with whom their natural communication system develops. This creates a primary attachment bond. The more responsive the adult is to the child, the deeper the attachment, and the more likely the child will develop healthy ways of responding to the people around him. Bowlby would often visit Regent's Park in London, where he would make systematic observations of the interactions between children and their mothers. While the mothers sat quietly on park benches, knitting or reading the paper, the kids would wander off to explore, occasionally looking over their shoulders to ascertain that Mum was still watching. But when a neighbor stopped by and absorbed his mother's interest with the latest gossip, the kids would run back and stay close, making sure he still had her attention. When infants and young children noticed that their mothers are not fully engaged with them, they become nervous. When their mothers disappear from sight, they may cry and become inconsolable. But as soon as their mothers return, they quiet down and resume their play. Bowlby saw attachment as the secure base from which a child moves out into the world. Over the subsequent five decades, research has firmly established that having a safe haven promotes self-reliance and instills a sense of sympathy and helpfulness to others in distress. From the intimate give-and-take of the attachment bond, children learn that other people have feelings and thoughts that are both similar to and different from theirs. In other words, they get in sync with their environment and with the people around them and develop the self-awareness, empathy, impulse control, and self-motivation that make it possible to become contributing members of the larger social culture. These qualities were painfully missing in the kids at our children's clinic. The Dance of Attunement Children become attached to whoever functions as their primary caregiver, but the nature of that attachment, whether it is secure or insecure, makes a huge difference over the course of a child's life. Secure attachment develops when caregiving includes emotional attunement. Attunement starts at the most subtle physical levels of interaction between babies and their caregivers, and it gives babies the feeling of being met and understood. As Edinburgh-based attachment researcher Colvin Trevartan says, the brain coordinates rhythmic body movements and guides them to act in sympathy with other people's brains. Infants hear and learn musicality from their mother's talk, even before birth. In Chapter 4, I describe the discovery of mirror neurons, the brain-to-brain -brain links that give us our capacity for empathy. Mirror neurons start functioning as soon as babies are born. When researcher Andrew Meltzoff at the University of Oregon pursed his lips or stuck out his tongue at six-hour-old babies, they promptly mirrored his actions. Newborns can focus their eyes only on objects within 8 to 12 inches, just enough to see the person who is holding them. Imitation is our most fundamental social skill. It assures that we automatically pick up and reflect the behavior of our parents, teachers, and peers. 
Most parents relate to their babies so spontaneously that they are barely aware of how attunement unfolds. But an invitation from a friend, the attachment researcher Ed Tronick, gave me the chance to observe that process more closely. Through a one-way mirror at Harvard's Laboratory of Human Development, I watched a mother playing with her two-month-old son, who was propped in an infant seat facing her. They were cooing to each other and having a wonderful time, until the mother leaned in to nuzzle him and the baby, in his excitement, yanked on her hair. The mother was caught unawares and yelped with pain, pushing away his hand while her face contorted with anger. The baby let go immediately, and they pulled back physically from each other. For both of them, the source of delight had become a source of distress. Obviously frightened, the baby brought his hands up to his face to block out the sight of his angry mother. The mother, in turn, realizing that her baby was upset, refocused on him, making soothing sounds in an attempt to smooth things over. The infant still had his eyes covered, but his craving for connection soon reemerged. He started peeking out to see if the coast was clear, while his mother reached toward him with a concerned expression. As she started to tickle his belly, he dropped his arms and broke into a happy giggle, and harmony was reestablished. Infant and mother were attuned again. This entire sequence of delight, rupture, repair, and new delight took slightly less than twelve seconds. Tronic and other researchers have now shown that when infants and caregivers are in sync on an emotional level, they're also in sync physically. Babies can't regulate their own emotional states, much less the changes in heart rate, hormone level, and nervous system activity that accompany emotions. When a child is in sync with his caregiver, his sense of joy and connection is reflected in his steady heartbeat and breathing and a low level of stress hormones. His body is calm. So are his emotions. The moment this music is disrupted, as it often is in the course of a normal day, all these physiological factors change as well. You can tell equilibrium has been restored when the physiology calms down. We soothe newborns, but parents soon start teaching their children to tolerate higher levels of arousal, a job that is often assigned to fathers. I once heard the psychologist John Gottman say, Mothers stroke and fathers poke. Learning how to manage arousal is a key life skill, and parents must do it for babies before babies can do it for themselves. If that gnawing sensation in his belly makes a baby cry, the breast or bottle arrives. If he's scared, someone holds and rocks him until he calms down. If his bowels erupt, someone comes and makes him clean and dry. Associating intense sensations with safety, comfort, and mastery is the foundation of self-regulation, self-soothing, and self-nurture, a theme to which I return throughout this book. A secure attachment combined with the cultivation of competency builds an internal locus of control, the key factor in healthy coping throughout life. Securely attached children learn what makes them feel good. They discover what makes them and others feel bad and they acquire a sense of agency, that their actions can change how they feel and how others respond. Securely attached kids learn the difference between situations they can control and situations where they need help. They learn that they can play an active role when faced with difficult situations. In contrast, children with histories of abuse and neglect learn that their terror, pleading, and crying do not register with their caregiver. 
Nothing they can do or say stops the beating or brings attention and help. In effect, they're being conditioned to give up when they face challenges later in life. Becoming Real Bowlby's contemporary, the pediatrician and psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, is the father of modern studies of attunement. His minute observations of mothers and children started with the way mothers hold their babies. He proposed that these physical interactions lay the groundwork for a baby's sense of self, and, with that, a lifelong sense of identity. The way a mother holds a child underlies the ability to feel the body as the place where the psyche lives. This visceral and kinesthetic sensation of how our bodies are met lays the foundation for what we experience as real. Winnicott thought that the vast majority of mothers did just fine in their attunement to their infants. It does not require extraordinary talent to be what he called a good enough mother. But things can go seriously wrong when mothers are unable to tune in to their baby's physical reality. If a mother cannot meet her baby's impulses and needs, the baby learns to become the mother's idea of what the baby is. Having to discount its inner sensations and trying to adjust to its caregiver's needs means the child perceives that something is wrong with the way it is. Children who lack physical attunement are vulnerable to shutting down the direct feedback from their bodies, the seat of pleasure, purpose, and direction. In the years since Bowlby's and Winnicott's ideas were introduced, attachment research around the world has shown that the vast majority of children are securely attached. When they grow up, their history of reliable, responsive caregiving will help to keep fear and anxiety at bay. Barring exposure to some overwhelming life event, meaning trauma, that breaks down the self-regulatory system, they will maintain a fundamental state of emotional security throughout their lives. Secure attachment also forms a template for children's relationships. They pick up what others are feeling and early on learn to tell a game from reality. And they develop a good nose for phony situations or dangerous people. Securely attached children usually become pleasant playmates and have lots of self-affirming experiences with their peers. Having learned to be in tune with other people, they tend to notice subtle changes in voices and faces and to adjust their behavior accordingly. They learn to live within a shared understanding of the world and are likely to become valued members of the community. This upward spiral, however, can be reversed by abuse or neglect. Abused kids are often very sensitive to changes in voices and faces, but they tend to respond to them as threats rather than as cues for staying in sync. Dr. Seth Pollack of the University of Wisconsin showed a series of faces to a group of normal eight-year-olds and compared their responses with those of a group of abused children the same age. Looking at this spectrum of angry to sad expressions, the abused kids were hyper-alert to the slightest features of anger. This is one reason abused children so easily become defensive or scared. Imagine what it's like to make your way through a sea of faces in the school corridor, trying to figure out who might assault you. Children who overreact to their peers' aggression, who don't pick up on other kids' needs, who easily shut down or lose control of their impulses, are likely to be shunned and left out of sleepovers or playdates. Eventually, they may learn to cover up their fear by putting up a tough front.
or they may spend more and more time alone, watching TV or playing computer games, falling even further behind on interpersonal skills and emotional self-regulation. The need for attachment never lessens. Most human beings simply cannot tolerate being disengaged from others for any length of time. People who cannot connect through work, friendships, or family usually find other ways of bonding, as through illnesses, lawsuits, or family feuds. Anything is preferable to that godforsaken sense of irrelevance and alienation. A few years ago, on Christmas Eve, I was called to examine a 14-year-old boy at the Suffolk County Jail. Jack had been arrested for breaking into the house of neighbors who were away on vacation. The burglar alarm was howling when the police found him in the living room. The first question I asked Jack was who he expected would visit him in jail on Christmas. Nobody, he told me. Nobody ever pays attention to me. It turned out that he had been caught during break-ins numerous times before. He knew the police, and they knew him. With delight in his voice, he told me that when the cops saw him standing in the middle of the living room, they yelled, Oh, my God, it's Jack again, that little motherfucker. Somebody recognized him. Somebody knew his name. A little while later, Jack confessed, You know, that's what makes it worthwhile. Kids will go to almost any length to feel seen and connected. Living with the Parents You Have Children have a biological instinct to attach. They have no choice. Whether their parents or caregivers are loving and caring, or distant, insensitive, rejecting, or abusive, children will develop a coping style based on their attempt to get at least some of their needs met. We now have reliable ways to assess and identify these coping styles, thanks largely to the work of two American scientists. Mary Ainsworth and Mary Maine and their colleagues, who conducted thousands of hours of observation of mother-infant pairs over many years. Based on these studies, Ainsworth created a research tool called The Strange Situation, which looks at how an infant reacts to temporary separation from the mother. Just as Bowlby had observed, securely attached infants are distressed when their mother leaves them but they show delight when she returns, and after a brief check-in for reassurance, they settle down and resume their play. But with infants who are insecurely attached, the picture is more complex. Children whose primary caregiver is unresponsive or rejecting learn to deal with their anxiety in two distinct ways. The researchers noticed that some seemed chronically upset and demanding with their mothers, while others were more passive and withdrawn. In both groups, contact with the mothers failed to settle them down. They did not return to play contentedly, as happens in secure attachment. In one pattern, called avoidant attachment, the infants look like nothing really bothers them. They don't cry when their mother goes away, and they ignore her when she comes back. However, this does not mean that they are unaffected. In fact, their chronically increased heart rates show that they are in a constant state of hyper-arousal. My colleagues and I call this pattern dealing but not feeling. Most mothers of avoidant infants seem to dislike touching their children. They have trouble snuggling and holding them, 
and they don't use their facial expressions and voices to create pleasurable back-and-forth rhythms with their babies. In another pattern, called anxious or ambivalent attachment, the infants constantly draw attention to themselves by crying, yelling, clinging, or screaming. They are feeling but not dealing. They seem to have concluded that unless they make a spectacle, nobody is going to pay attention to them. They become enormously upset when they do not know where their mother is, but derive little comfort from her return. And even though they don't seem to enjoy your company, they stay passively or angrily focused on her, even in situations when other children would rather play. Attachment researchers think that the three organized attachment strategies, secure, avoidant, and anxious, work because they elicit the best care a particular caregiver is capable of providing. Infants who encounter a consistent pattern of care, even if it's marked by emotional distance or insensitivity, can adapt to maintain the relationship. And that doesn't mean that there are no problems. Attachment patterns often persist into adulthood. Anxious toddlers tend to grow into anxious adults, while avoidant toddlers are likely to become adults who are out of touch with their own feelings and those of others. As in, there's nothing wrong with a good spanking. I got hit and it made me the success I am today. In school, avoidant children are likely to bully other kids, while the anxious children are often their victims. However, development is not linear, and many life experiences can intervene to change these outcomes. But there is another group that is less stably adapted, a group that makes up the bulk of the children we treat and a substantial proportion of the adults who are seen in psychiatric clinics. Some 20 years ago, Mary Main and her colleagues at Berkeley began to identify a group of children, about 15% of those they studied, who seemed to be unable to figure out how to engage with their caregivers. The critical issue turned out to be that the caregivers themselves were a source of distress or terror to the children. Children in this situation have no one to turn to, and they are faced with an unsolvable dilemma. Their mothers are simultaneously necessary for survival and a source of fear. They can neither approach the secure and ambivalent strategies, shift their attention, which is the avoidant strategy, nor flee. If you observe such children in a nursery school or attachment laboratory, you see them look toward their parents when they enter the room and then quickly turn away. Unable to choose between seeking closeness and avoiding the parent, they may rock on their hands and knees, appear to go into a trance, freeze with their arms raised, or get up to greet their parent and then fall to the ground. Not knowing who is safe or whom they belong to, they may be intensely affectionate with strangers or may trust nobody. Maine called this pattern disorganized attachment. Disorganized attachment is fright without solution. Becoming disorganized within. Conscientious parents often become alarmed when they discover attachment research worrying that their occasional impatience or their ordinary lapses in attunement may permanently damage their kids. In real life, there are bound to be misunderstandings, inept responses, and failures of communication. 
Because mothers and fathers miss cues or are simply preoccupied with other matters, infants are frequently left to their own devices to discover how they can calm themselves down. Within limits, this isn't a problem.